0: I know what you're probably thinking. Uh, You forgot your guitar and you're about 20 minutes late. Today is uh, one of those kind of um, rare opportunities that I absolutely love um, where I get to um, talk about what the Word has to say, not just through song. That's usually how um, God has allowed me to, to preach the Word, is through song. But today, uh, to be able to preach in this way and teach through this way is a huge, huge honor for me. So my name's Aaron, I'm the worship pastor here. And uh, today we are in the second week of our series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. Last week we talked about the fact that Jesus said that we need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And that was one of those hard sayings that's like hard to hear, right? It's hard to hear those words. And today we're going to look at another thing that Jesus said that isn't necessarily a hard thing for us to hear but it's incredibly hard for us to do. We're looking at when Jesus said the phrase do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. There's a part of that, right, in hearing Jesus say that that's it's kind of affirming to know that okay Jesus knew we were going to struggle with anxiety so he said hey don't be anxious. There's a part of it that feels really good to hear that but it is so so much harder to actually do that. And I suppose that today's message um, is, is meant as much for me as it might be for you. I mean, even in studying this and thinking about preaching this today, to a certain degree, man, it's exposed all these things in, in my own heart, my own life, of my own struggles with fear and anxiety. You know, I have this, this sinful desire for, for people to, to approve of me, to like me. And uh, often, like, in social context, you know, of, like, 30-plus people, I just get super weird, right? Like, people call it social anxiety or social awkwardness, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I just know if I'm in a room where there has to be, like, human interaction, a lot of times I'll just pick my fingernails, you know, to the bone and sweat. My armpits will sweat uncontrollably, and I just get, like, super, super weird, right? And maybe if you've even had, like, some conversation with me after a service, you've, you've, like, realized, well... (laughs) That was a big letdown. That guy is super weird. And uh, it's true. I just, I just, I've always kind of wrestled and struggled with uh, feeling anxious and feeling kind of awkward, right? And um, maybe you feel this. Maybe this, is, uh, this subject of anxiety and being anxious is something that resonates with you. When I'm anxious, I feel out of control, right? I feel out of control. I, I worry about the future, I worry about my kids and their future. Uh, I have a sixth grader, right? I I don't feel old enough or wise enough to have a sixth grader, but I have a sixth grader. And sixth graders are super weird, but super awesome, right? And the other day, Caden, who's my sixth grader, he stole my phone. And, uh, you know, I get it back and it's all slimy with fingerprints all over and stuff, you know. And he just fills it up with all these selfies that he took. And this photo totally captures... What uh, what makes me feel anxious about a sixth grader? I mean, that's just like, that's the way he always is. And there's like a see him, and it just fills me with anxiety of like, I don't know how to parent a sixth grader. Maybe there's something in your life that feels a little bit out of your control and overwhelming. I worry about money. I worry about what's going to happen when I'm too old to wear skinny jeans and play the guitar. You know, I worry if I'm gonna have another good song to write, or if all the best stuff is behind me. I, I worry about if people are gonna think I'm a fake. I worry who's gonna be the next president and whether or not I-35 is ever not gonna be filled with traffic, you know? I, I worry if Jamie drives home too late um, by herself. I worry what's gonna happen. It makes me feel completely out of control. That's what anxiety is. and. One of the, the most kind of out-of-control feelings that I've had in a long time is, is with one of my sons, Deacon. Deacon is 10 years old, and a couple years ago, Deacon was diagnosed with, um, with an incurable disease where tiny tumors grow on his vocal cords. And so over a period of two years, Deacon was in and out of surgeries. He had about seven surgeries where they would go in and remove tumors, and then a couple weeks later... More would grow, and then would have to go back in and, and take out more. It's this, this disease that is, is, is rare and uh, doesn't have a cure yet. And there's a part of me when I look at Deacon, and if I really think about it, it fills me with fear and anxiety. I praise the Lord right now, this season we're in, Deacon is in remission, so there aren't any tumors growing. But there still is this kind of like rumble, this fear in me of what happens if they come back? Like what happens if he can't speak? What happens if those tumors keep growing where he can't breathe? Like that kind of anxiety makes me feel out of control. And I find myself filled with fear and worry when I think about it. Do you ever feel this way? Like, do you have anything in your life that makes you feel this way? Anxiety about today? anxiety about tomorrow? I mean, this is what's true about all of us. We, we all struggle with anxiety if we're really honest. There's not one person in here that's exempt from it. It doesn't matter if you're the most godly person among us. We all get anxious. Rich and poor people get anxious. Young and old people get anxious. The extrovert, the introvert, the bold, the insecure, We come together to the scriptures with a common need for truth today. We come today as a people with a common need for Jesus, for him to speak truth to us. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says this hard saying. So if you got a copy of the scripture, let's go ahead and turn there right now. This is Matthew chapter 6. And if you don't, we've got the scripture on the screen. But hear what Jesus says when he says this. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So i think any of us in the room could spot pretty easily what the main point of this paragraph is right there's nothing obscure here there's no like hidden meaning here it's pretty clear at the end of the day when we read this and when we walk out of this room today what i hope is kind of ringing in all of our ears is this main point jesus does not want me to be anxious he does not want us to be anxious i mean think about how many times in that one passage Jesus says, do not be anxious. Verse 25, he says, do not be anxious about your life. Verse 31, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Verse 34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is sitting with his disciples and they're about to go out, right, and preach the Gospel. And Jesus says, hey guys, do not be anxious about what you're going to say or how you're going to say it. I'm going to tell you how to do it. And then even later in the scriptures, in Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything in your life. So the Bible implicitly commands us, do not be anxious, no matter what. Not about food, not about clothing, not about what to say, not about tomorrow, not about today, not about life. Do not be anxious about anything, right? So the question, I think, for us to start with is what in the world do we do with this command that seems so counterculture and counterintuitive? What do we do with this command to not sin by being anxious? Let's start with this. What is anxiety? Like, what is anxiety? If you think about it, anxiety is something incredibly hard to describe, but almost impossible to define right? The word anxious here in the original language, which is Greek, the original word for anxious was, was like being torn into pieces. So essentially, Jesus is saying, don't be torn into pieces about your life. You felt it, right? Some days, anxiety feels like it's this dark cloud that's kind of hanging above you. It never seems to go away, no matter how hard you try to run away from it. It seems to block all the light of truth and so all you see is this kind of gray and mushy cloud above you and it casts all these oppressive shadows on on every single part of your day. Maybe for you anxiety feels like, like a scary film score. It's just constantly underneath every single part ...of your day and never seems to go away. And at any point, any corner you're going to turn around, right? You're nervous and you're on alert because you don't know what's coming. Maybe for you, it's like a constant gnawing of the soul. A feeling like things aren't in order. And at any moment, at any place, this fragile thread that your life is hanging by is going to break. And everything that makes you you, right, is going to come crashing to the ground. For me, anxiety, it feels, it kind of looks like this. It looks like this big, wide open, barren desert. Nothing but mounds of sand, nothing but bright, scorching sun, no shade, no water, no people, just this like barrenness, this this place of loneliness and, and nothing that seems to be a sort of solution. I've never in my life driven a car through a desert, but one of my biggest fears in life is running out of gas in the middle of the desert, right? I just, I can't think of anything more terrible than running out of gas in the middle of a desert. It's that feeling of like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. That's what anxiety feels like to me. Sometimes our anxiety is based on a specific thing, right? So you say, I'm anxious because I don't know what my job is gonna be after college, right? Very specific. But then other times, most of the time, for some, most of us in the room, anxiety is just something that's always there. Not, not dependent on one particular situation, but just kind of always there, always haunting you. In this room today, there are very real conditions that make extreme anxiety And panic attacks and depression, a daily, real-life problem for many of you. And I want to just say this before we move on today. As Christians, right, as Christians, we have this tendency to reduce everything to just the spiritual. So we say, hey, you're going through a major season of depression or anxiety. Well, you need to pray more and you need to read your Bible more. And on the other hand, though, the world seems to reduce everything only to the physical. So the world says, hey, you're going through a season of anxiety and depression. Well, all you need to do is take these pills. And what I want us to hear today is that anxiety and depression is always a spiritual issue. But it might not always just be a spiritual issue. We live in an imperfect world. We live in a broken, messed up, fallen world. Chemicals that should be in balance aren't always in balance. So there are rare times when some of us may need to receive God's common grace of medicine. So as you hear this message today, if you're taking antidepressants, you don't have to feel like you're not trusting God today, okay? You don't have to feel today like you don't have enough faith. We need all of God's grace, and sometimes that includes his common grace of medicine. So regardless of where you're at in your unique experience of anxiety, there are both spiritual and physical ways of caring for the soul. And God intends for every single one of us in this room to be in the war, fighting against anxiety. As a church, I just want to say this, as a church, we want to help, right? Austin Stone Counseling Center is a tremendous resource. Your pastors, elders, deacons, missional community leaders, that's why we have leaders in our life to help us. So if that's you and you need help, then please get help. We're here for you. In our announcements at the end of the service, we're going to talk about um, some tangible ways that we can offer help, Okay. So let's do this. Let's use as a working definition. We need some sort of definition like framework to put anxiety in. Let's use what Tim Keller says. This is how he addresses the issue of anxiety. He says, anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. Anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable. Here's what he goes on to say. Worry is concern about the potential, not the actual. Worry is concern about which we can't control the essence of anxiety is the desire to control that which we can't control that's why we're anxious we feel the need for control in the area where there is no possibility of control that causes anxiety now that's what it is anxiety is the will to control the uncontrollable i i like playfully make fun of my wife all the time for this right because she worries about things that haven't even happened yet, right? She's like, Aaron, what are we gonna do? What if Caden picks the wrong college, right? I'm like, Caden doesn't even know how to spell college. I even asked him yesterday. I was like, Caden, you know how to spell college? He's like, C-O-L-L-E-Y-G-E. I was like, okay, thank you. He doesn't even know how to spell college yet, right? (laughs) she's like what if story doesn't find any friends in her new second grade class i'm like she has crayons second graders they need crayons not friends right what if our house burns down what if our house burns down that's why we have smoke detectors it's going to be okay but there's a part of all of us that that is true of right we get nervous and anxious about things that haven't even happened yet we try to control them things that are outside of our control that haven't happened yet Listen if we really look carefully at what Jesus is saying here in this passage, he tells us where our anxiety actually comes from. The root of our anxiety is our insatiable desire to be in control. It's our insatiable desire to have power, to be in the center. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 25 again. Look at what Jesus says in 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, What you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. This is Jesus' answer, food and clothing. First time I read this, I was like, Jesus, what are you talking about? How is this the solution or the insight or the answer for how to not be anxious, food and clothing? Well, in verse 26, Jesus unpacks this first part that life is more than food. This is how he unpacks it for us. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Jesus says, look at the birds. That word, look there, is more than just a kind of glance or a kind of look and watch, but The word look there means to consider, to think about, to to meditate on and consider. So what Jesus is saying there is he's saying, hey, consider the birds. Consider the birds of the air. They don't sow and gather up things into barns. They're birds. They can't build barns. Consider that. They sow and they work, but they don't gather things into barns. And yet, who is it that feeds them? It's your heavenly father that feeds them. No matter how hard they work, at the end of the day, Jesus says, your heavenly father feeds the birds, consider that. I have a creek that runs behind my house. And for some reason in this season right now, uh, there's like a thousand birds that show up every single morning in my backyard. And I'm not kidding, like a thousand birds all at the same time, just like flock, hover and hang out in my backyard. So a couple days ago, when I was thinking about what Jesus said, I heard these birds all kind of like doing their bird thing uh, outside. So I I went outside and I just, I was like, okay, I'll consider the birds. So I I stood out there. I was like, I'm considering, considering, considering. As I watched them, it was absolutely incredible. Um, They swarm all these oak trees, right? And then uh, without any prompting they all just kind of nosedive into the creek and flap their wings around it and they they clean themselves and they they get worms out of kind of the, the bank of the creek and then they fly back up to the branches and they swarm around and they just like almost like music they seem to just be orchestrating this unbelievable sort of picture they, go to the ground and they scour it for, for worms and for bugs and they, they fly back up. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm not like some weird bird watcher. But in my backyard, I'm like, this is unbelievable. It's, it was beautiful. It was beautiful to see them doing what they do. And as I watched these birds, I thought, this is not a lesson in laziness. Like what these birds are doing is not a, a lesson in laziness. But like machines... They seem to work meticulously at simply being birds. And Jesus says, hey, everybody, consider this. No matter how hard they work, it's God who feeds them. It's God who feeds the birds. Even though they work and they soar and they dive. at the end of the day, God is their provider. Consider this. Birds don't anxiously hoard seeds and worms out of fear ...that there might not be a tomorrow. No, they go about their business without any doubt in their tiny bird brain, right? That tomorrow morning, the sun is going to come up. And the creator is still the creator. And their provider is still the provider. God is in control. Then Jesus, he, he beautifully says this. He looks at them and he says, so as you've been considering that... Are you not of more value than they are? God provides everything for birds. So you're way more valuable. Don't you think he's also going to provide everything for you? Since you are more valuable than a bird, child of God, hear this. Consider this truth. God will be your provider also. The first way of addressing anxiety in our life... ...is by saying this, God, you are so good that you would be my provider. There's really no way for us to deal with anxiety until we understand that everything in our life is working out... ...like Ephesians 1 says, everything is working out according to the counsel of his will. There's no way to trust God fully, right, to be your provider... Until you understand that Romans eight says, because all things work together for good to them that love God, I love how Jesus is so quick to to, to remind us of what is true. He says, "God is your provider, and then he keeps going almost uh, almost like really quick to remind us how how frivolous and um, and, and and at times like Um, how quick we can like move to being worried without remembering truth. He says this, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? At its deepest level, Jesus is showing us something that's been there all along. We've never been our own provider. We've never been in control. There's this illusion This illusion that we're in control of things, right? This illusion looks something like this. Hey, I'm in control of things, and if and when things seem to get out of control, then that's what causes me to be anxious, right? When the doctor comes in and gives you bad news or when your professor pulls you aside and... Confronts you with something very hard when your parent is approaching death, suddenly you feel anxious because it seems like you're out of control of things, right? But that's not what's actually happening. Here's what's really happening the threat, the danger, the bad news that's what reveals what's always been there. It reveals your true condition. And your true condition is this you've never been in control. You've never been keeping all the pieces of your life going. Danger comes in and triggers anxiety and reveals what's always been true. We are not in control. And so Jesus says worrying gets you nowhere. It doesn't fix anything, it profits you nothing, but trusting your providential Father. The one who provides for you profits you everything. Think about it this way. And I know this is hard to think about it this way, but think about it in light of what the scripture says. Every painful part of your story, past, present, and future, every part of it, God wrote that story. He wrote it. And he did it for his glory and he did it for your good. Every aspect of chaos that seems to be unraveling in your life today, it's actually perfectly held together by God. And every single part of it is meant for his glory and for your good. The stressful relationship that you're in today, it might not change today. Your son or your daughter may not be healed tomorrow. The disease you're going to battle with today may still plague your body tomorrow. But God's ways, they're higher than your ways. God's ways are higher than my desires for deacon. They're higher. And although we wouldn't have chosen for the story to be written this way, right, if we had a say in it and we could write it, we probably wouldn't have written it like it was written. But God wrote it and he wrote it for his glory and for your good. So You can be freed up today from anxiety and the oppression of anxiety when you remember that the sun is going to come back up. And the creator is still the creator. And the provider is still the provider. God is in control. Listen, God can be trusted. He's trustworthy. And how do you know this? How do you know that he's actually working all things for his glory and for your good? Listen, listen to what Jesus says next when he unpacks the next part about life is more than clothing. Listen to what he says. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? If you've ever looked close enough at a flower, there's one thing that's undeniable. God loves to adorn things with beauty. God loves to adorn things with beauty. Think about it. A flower... I don't know why I became like a bird and a flower guy all of a sudden in one week, all right, but if you think about a flower, a flower lasts for such a short amount of time. It's here one day and it's gone the next. It does no work on its own, yet our masterful creator painted every single petal with attention and detail and form and color because he loves to adorn things with beauty. He delights wrapping a mountainside with splotches of color. He enjoys clothing a grassy field with dots of yellows and oranges and blues. He loves beauty. And Jesus says, if God loves to clothe the grass of a field with lilies, how much more Does he love to clothe and adorn his very own sons and daughters? I mean, this shows the great love and concern and compassion that God has when he crafted every detail of your story. You might say, man, you have not seen my life very closely. There's not a whole lot of beautiful things that I'm clothed and adorned with. I've got suffering, I've got sorrow, I've got tragedy, I've got loss, I've got frustration. You must not know my story. Well, here's the thing. I think Jesus points us to consider an even deeper level of love and concern with which he clothes us. Consider what God has wrapped your life in today. Consider it. Every single disciple of Jesus has been adorned with exactly what he or she needs to carry out their calling in life. Everything you've been given is perfect for you right now. And think about what you've been wrapped with. Think about the clothing that God has clothed you with. Here's what Isaiah 61 says about what we're clothed in. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord... My soul will exult in my God. Hear this, for he has clothed me with what? With garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland. And as a bride adorns herself with jewels. He has clothed you with salvation, child of God. Not with hopelessness. He has clothed you, as the scripture says... With a robe of righteousness, not a robe of shame or fear. Galatians 3.27 says this. This is what's true about you, believer. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourself with Christ. He has clothed you. He has covered you with Christ. Why? Because God loves to adorn things with beauty. Look at what your life is wrapped in. See that you're not wrapped in spiritual rags. You're not enslaved to the old king of sin and death anymore. You used to be in darkness. You used to be in bondage to sin. But when Jesus crashed into your life, he changed you. He cleans you up. He clothed you with something different. Salvation, righteousness with Christ. And now you stand adorned in something different. In something that's beautiful by a God who loves to adorn things with beauty. And if we become a people who unshakably believe in what God has already done. Then we can be a people who do what the scriptures say next in verse 33. Jesus says seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. When you're tempted to see everything that you lack in your life, hey, shift your eyes, see the kingdom of God. Like when you're tempted to see all the problems in your family, shift your eyes and see first the kingdom of God. When you're tempted to believe some lie that, that you're alone, that your life isn't valuable or worth living, shift your eyes and see the kingdom of God. When you're tempted to see To believe that God is not right smack dab in the middle of all of your suffering and all of your sorrow and all of your loss. Shift your eyes and see first the kingdom of God. Jesus never promised to take any of it away. But he does promise to be right in the middle of it with you. Feeding and clothing Providing for, adorning, working, toiling for you because you're his and you have more value and beauty than a bird or a flower. So how do we do this, right? If that's true, how do we do this? How do we flee? How do we war against anxiety? Well, here's the deal. We're not the only people on the planet um, to ask that question today, right? I mean, this is a question... ...that people have been asking for a really, really long time. So I got curious and went on to Amazon. And I just searched for books about uh, self-help books for fighting anxiety. And I was blown away at how many books there are with this topic, right? There are almost 65,000 books about fighting anxiety. I mean, we all want to know the answer, right? How do we fight against being anxious? Time Magazine... Last year said that the most prevailing condition of the human heart and the human mind is the struggle against anxiety and depression. We all want to know how to fix it. That's why some of us have so many different things that we choose, that we run to. You choose shutting down, keeping quiet, being alone. Maybe you choose the abuse of alcohol to numb this feeling of being anxious or being worried. Our common solutions look a lot like this. Hey, man. You need to stop thinking about your problems. Hey, you need a vacation. What you really need is to get a massage. You need to read this book, and here's some relaxation techniques. That's, that's what you need. That's our solutions. And hear me, there's a part of some of those things that can help. I love running Town Lake, right? If I get, like, if I get super anxious and worried, I, I need to just go run, right? There's some things that help in that. But at the end of the day, running is not going to fix any of my problems, the only thing that's going to really bring soothing balm to our issue of anxiety is what the Scripture talks about in a posture. See, the world offers techniques. Here's something you should do. But the Scripture doesn't offer any techniques. The Scripture instead offers a posture. Think about this. The, the posture of, um, of pride leads to wanting to control things, Right? So so since control comes from pride, we must have a posture that's opposite of a prideful, boastful posture. We need a posture of humility, a posture of submission. One of my favorite books in all the Bible is the book of Psalms. I love it because you got the psalmist that's writing all of these really vulnerable, hard things. Like in one verse... He'll talk about how great and near God is, but then in the very, very next verse, he's like, God, I don't even know where you are and I ought to have trouble trusting you. Something that resonates with me when I read the book of Psalms. And in Psalm 63, David the psalmist, he writes about this same exact issue that we're talking about today. And what he offers for us, what the scripture offers for us is not a technique, but a posture. So if you would, turn to Psalm 63 and let's look at this, this tremendous insight to posture. Psalm 63 verse 1 says this, "O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and a weary land where there is no water. Think about that posture that's already there. Can you hear him crying out? He thirsts. He faints. He finds himself in this place. This place, the very real place that's dry and draining and intimidating and challenging and confusing. It's an anxious place. It's a real place. And while he's in that place, he has this posture of, oh God, you are my God. I seek you. Like some of you in the room today, you are thirsting. Like you're fainting. You feel like you are at the end of your rope you feel like you're in a dry and draining and intimidating and challenging confusion anxious place but you're you're not seeking him yet you haven't turned your eyes to him and you're not crying out to him yet david's first posture was one of crying out to god and then he goes on in verse 2 and he says so i have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory God, I'm in a really dry spot here, but I remember that I've seen you and I remember that you have the power. Like David's reminding himself, hey, God has all the power. All of David's illusions about his own power, those illusions are gone. And he's saying what's been true forever, God, is that you have the power and you have the glory. God, you are in control. And then I love this part because David just gets fiery, right? He gets almost defiant, like he's yelling. If there could be like a thousand explanation points, I feel like this would be at the end of verse 3. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. It's like David is preaching to himself. He's saying, okay, heart, all right, soul, all right, lips, all right, lungs, all right, mouth. We remembered the truth about God. We know that it's Him that's in control. We know that His love is better. So listen up, guys. We are going to praise God. The weapon of choice in going to war against anxiety is always worship. The weapon of choice in going to war against anxiety is always worship. The best ammunition that you've got ...in attacking fear and worry and anxiety is worship. Why? Because worship is essentially this. Worship is putting Jesus in the center of everything. That's what worship is. Worship is putting God in the center of everything. And when you put anything other than God in the center... ...you're worshiping the wrong thing. Listen, seeking first the kingdom of God is a worship issue... The command to not be anxious is a worship issue. I know some of you guys are saying, well, of course you would think that. You're the pastor of worship, right? But this is not like what a worship pastor thinks. This is what the Bible says. This is what the Bible commands us to do. To set our eyes and to set our hope to fix it on Christ. To put him back in the center Some of you guys feel like the weight of the whole world is on your shoulders today. And you're asking, what's the solution for dealing with this weight of the world that's on my shoulders? Listen, if you feel that way today, if you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders, it's a good indication that you are in the center of your world. And that somehow you've confused yourself with thinking, ...that you can do your best to hold everything up. You were not meant to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. Jesus already did that. Jesus literally took the weight of sin and death and shame... ...and he put it upon his shoulders so you and I would never have to bear that burden. That's why 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxieties on him. Throw all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he's Jesus and he's got it. He doesn't buckle or bend beneath the weight of it so you can trust him. Throw your anxieties on him. And worship puts Jesus back in the center of it all, right where he belongs. Listen to verse 4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Worship is this expression of humility and submission with joy. The opposite of anxiety and worry, right? The proper posture of a child of God who's going to war against anxiety is a posture of worship. But some of you say, well, man, singing ain't really my deal. This whole worship thing, that's cool and all. But it's just not really like for me. It's not my thing. Like lifting hands, uh, not, not, not my deal. I'll just say this. There are moments of both victory and desperation. If you're a human being with a beating heart, there's moments of victory and desperation where all you can do is lift your hands and cry out. Every human being on the planet knows that. Haven't you been to an awesome, like an awesome game, right? And something incredible happens. And what does every single person in all of the stands, what do they immediately do when something awesome happens? (laughs) That's right. My 10 year olds, they play soccer and they play football and no 10 year old's great, okay? It's just not like, no 10 year old is great at sports. But I'm telling you, Deacon will do something that I think is amazing, right? And everybody else knows it's awesome too. But Deacon does something like that. And I don't care if there's one person there to see it. I'm like, that is my boy. That's right, victory. The whole world knows that when you have a victorious sort of moment, you can't help but put your hands in the air. You know, when we were singing just a second ago, when we were singing always my God will come through. There's a part of all of us that was like, that's right. That's my God and he will come through. Every human being on the planet knows that that's a natural response. Sometimes in a place of desperation, the most natural response is, God, I don't know how you are going to fix my kid. But I'm crying out for you. I'm in a place of desperation. So I'm crying out because I need you. Because if you don't fix this, there's nobody that can fix this. You see, there is a place of victory and desperation where all you can do is lift your hands and cry out. And David found himself in that spot. The man who beheld the power and the glory of God, the one that was in the darkest moment, right? He was in the anxiety. The man who killed bears and led armies, that man knew that the best ammunition to use in fighting against fear and anxiety was to cry out, to lift his hands. To open his mouth and say, God, you are my God. God, you are my God. Listen to the confidence of a worshiper with a posture like that in the middle of chaos, in the middle of a storm. Listen to the confidence. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand. It holds me. Worship, even in the craziest chaos and anxiety and depression of your life, worship ushers in a peace That transcends all understanding, even in the watches of the night, even in the shadows. Worship is a posture of submission and humility. It puts Jesus back in the center of it all where he belongs. It reminds us that the weight of the world is on his shoulders and he does not buckle or bend by it. Worship reminds us that the sun is gonna come up and the creator is still the creator. And the provider is still the provider. Worship reminds us that he's in control and he's trustworthy. So today, cry out to God. And tonight, cry out to God. And tomorrow, cry out to God. And the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day again and again... Cry out, oh God, you are my God. Your hand upholds me. Because if and when everything in your life completely crumbles, hear this, Jesus will still be there. He will still be there. He's in control. Do not be anxious. Amen. Let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to produce that posture in us. God, I'm so incredibly thankful that you are strong, that you are kind and loving, that you've got it. I can't imagine, God, what, what life would be like if the weight of the world really was on my shoulders. I can't imagine what day in and day out would be like, God, if I didn't have you. So we just first, we pause and we say, God, you are our God. We're proud to be sons and daughters of such a good, good Father. Jesus, I pray that as the word has been preached today and as the word has been considered today, that no matter if we're in a season of suffering and loss or if we're in a season of victory, wherever we're at, God, would it be true of us that we say, Jesus, you are amazing. And we trust you. And you're in control. And we believe you. And we have faith and trust. Jesus, you are greater. You're more glorious and more kind and beautiful than anything. So we're going to cry out to you before we leave today, God. We're going to cry out to you. With voices, with hearts, with posture, with hands. We're going to cry out to you. Because we're in a place where... The only thing we can do is lift our hands and cry out to you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.